BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 14 of The Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. The Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Gray. Chapter 14. All Heroes But One. As we rode up the slope of Buckskin, the sunrise glinted red gold through the aisles of frosted pines, giving us a hunter's glad greeting. With all due respect to and appreciation of the breaks of the Siwash, we unanimously decided that if cougars inhabited any other section of canyon country, we preferred it, and were going to find it. We had often speculated on the appearance of the rim wall directly across the neck of the canyon upon which we were located. It showed a long stretch of breaks, fissures, caves, yellow crags, crumbled ruins, and clefts green with pinyon pine. As a crow flies, it was only a mile or two straight across from camp. But to reach it, we had to ascend the mountain and head the canyon which indented the slope. A thousand feet or more above the level bench, the character of the forest changed. The pines grew thicker, and interspersed among them were silver spruces and balsams. Here, in the clumps of small trees and underbrush, we began to jump deer, and in a few moments a greater number than I had ever seen in all my hunting experiences loped within range of my eye. I could not look out into the forest, where an aisle or lane or glade stretched to any distance without seeing a big gray deer cross it. Jones said the herds had recently come up from the breaks, where they had wintered. These deer were twice the size of the eastern species and as fat as well-fed cattle. They were almost as tame, too. Big herd ran over one glade, leaving behind several curious does, which watched us intently for a moment, then bound off with a stiff, springy bounce that so amused me. Sounder crossed fresh trails one after another. Jude, Tig, and Ranger followed him, but hesitated often, barked and whined. Don started off once to come sneaking back at Jones's stern call. But surly old Mose either would not or could not obey, and away he dashed. Bang! Jones sent a charge of fine shot after him. He yelped, double up as if stung, and returned as quickly as he had gone. Here, you white and black coon dog, said Jones. Get him behind and stay there. We turned to the right after a while and got among shallow ravines. Gigantic pines grew on the ridges and the hollows 
and everywhere bluebells shone blue from the white frost. Why the frost did not kill these beautiful flowers was a mystery to me. The horses could not step without crushing them. Before long the ravines became so deep that we had to zigzag up and down their sides, and to force our horses through the aspen thickets in the hollows. Once from a ridge I saw a troop of deer and stopped to watch them. Twenty-seven, I counted outright, but there must have been three times that number. I saw the herd break across the glade and watched them until they were lost in the forest. My companions, having disappeared, I pushed on, and while working out of a wide, deep hollow, I noticed the sunny patches fade from the bright slopes and the golden streaks vanish among the pines. The sky had become overcast and the forest was darkening. The wahoo, I cried out, returned in echo only. The wind blew hard in my face and the pines began to bend and roar. An immense black cloud enveloped the buckskin. Satan had carried me no further than the next ridge when the forest frowned dark as twilight and on the wind whirled flakes of snow. Over the next hollow, a white pall roared through the trees toward me. Hardly had I time to get the direction of the trail and its relation to the trees nearby when the storm enfolded me. Of his own accord, Satan stopped in the lee of a bushy spruce. The roar in the pines equaled that of the cave under Niagara, and the bewildering, whirling mass of snow was as difficult to see through as the tumbling, seething waterfall. I was confronted by the possibility of passing the night there, and calming my fears as best I could, hastily felt for my matches and knife. The prospect of being lost the next day in a white forest was also appalling, but I soon reassured myself that the storm was only a snow squall, and would not last long. Then I gave myself up to the pleasure and beauty of it. I could only faintly discern the dim trees, the limbs of the spruce, which partially preceded me, sagged down to my head with their burden. I had but to reach out my hand for a snowball. Both the wind and snow seemed warm. The great flakes were like swan feathers on a summer breeze. There was something joyous in the whirl and snow and roar of wind. While I bent over to shake my holster, the storm passed as suddenly as it had come. When I looked up, there were the pines, like pillars of Parian marble, and a white shadow, a vanishing cloud fled, with receding roar on the wings of the wind. Fast on this retreat burst the warm, bright sun. I faced my course and was delighted to see, through an opening where the ravine cut out of the forest, the red-tipped peaks of the canyon and the vaulted dome I had named St. Mark's. As I started, a new and an unexpected after-feature of the storm began to manifest itself. The sun, being warm, even hot, began to melt the snow, and under the trees a heavy rain fell, and in the glades and hollows fine mist blew. Exquisite rainbows hung from white-tipped branches and curved over the hollows. Glistening patches of snow fell from the pines and broke the showers. In a quarter of an hour I rode out of the forest to the rim wall on dry ground. Against the green pinions, Frank's white horse stood out conspicuously, and near him browsed the mounts of Jim and Wallace. The boys were not in evidence. Concluding they had gone down over the rim, I dismounted and kicked off my shafts, and, taking my rifle and camera, hurried to look the place over. To my surprise and interest, I found a long succession of rim wall in ruins. It lay in a great curve between the two giant capes, 
and many short, sharp, projecting promontories, like the teeth of a saw, overhung the canyon. The slopes between these points of cliff were covered with a deep growth of pinion, and in these places descent would be easy. Everywhere in the corrugated wall were rents and rifts. Cliffs stood detached like islands near a shore. Yellow crags rose out of green clefts, jumble of rocks, and slides of rim-wall, broken into blocks, massed under their promontories. The singular raggedness and wildness of the scene took hold of me, and was not dispelled until the baying of sounder and dawn roused action in me. Apparently the hounds were widely separated. Then I heard Jim's yell, but it ceased when the wind lulled and I heard it no more. Running back from the point, I began to go down. The way was steep, almost perpendicular, but because of the great stones and the absence of slides was easy. I took long strides and jumps and slid over rocks and swung on pinion branches and covered distance like a rolling stone. At the foot of the rim wall, or at a line where it would have reached had it extended regularly, the slope became less pronounced. I could stand up without holding on to a support. The largest pinions I had seen made a forest that almost stood on end. These trees grew up, down and out, and twisted in curves, and many were two feet in thickness. During my descent I halted at intervals to listen, and always heard one of the hounds, sometimes several. But as I descended for a long time, and did not get anywhere or approach the dogs, I began to grow impatient. A large pinion with a dead top suggested a good outlook, so I climbed it, and saw I could sweep a large section of the slope. It was a strange thing to look downhill over the tips of green trees. Below perhaps four hundred yards was a slide open for a long way. All the rest was green incline, and with many dead branches sticking up like spears, and an occasional crag. From this perch I heard the hounds, then followed a yell I thought was Jim's, and after it of the bellowing of Wallace's rifle. Then all was silent. The shots had effectually checked the yelping of the hounds. I let out a yell, another cougar that Jones would not lasso. All at once I heard a familiar sliding of small rocks below me, and I watched the open slope with greedy eyes. Not a bit surprised was I to see a cougar break out of the green and go tearing down the slide. In less than six seconds, I had sent six steel-jacket bullets after him. Puffs of dust rose closer and closer to him. Each bullet went nearer the mark, and the last showered him with gravel and turned him straight down the canyon slope. I slid down the dead pinion and jumped nearly twenty feet to the soft sand below, and after putting a loaded clip in my rifle, began kangaroo leaps down the slope. When I reached the point where the cougar had entered the slide, I called the hounds, but they did not come nor answer me. Notwithstanding my excitement, I appreciated the distance to the bottom of the slope before I reached it. In my haste, I ran upon the verge of a precipice, twice as deep as the first rim wall, but one glance down sent me shudderingly backward. With all the breath I had left, I yelled, Wahoo! Wahoo! From the echoes flung at me, I imagined at first that my friends were right on my ears, but no real answer came. The cougar had probably passed along this second rim wall to a break and had gone down. His trail could easily be taken by any of the hounds. Vexed and anxious, I signaled again and again. Once, long after the echo had gone to sleep in some hollow canyon, I caught a faint, Wahoo! 
but it might have come from the clouds. I did not hear a hound barking above me on the slope, but suddenly, to my amazement, Sounder's deep bay rose from the abyss below. I ran along the rim, called till I was hoarse, leaned over so far that the blood rushed to my head, and then sat down. I concluded this canyon hunting could bear some sustained attention and thought, as well as frenzied action. Examination of my position showed how impossible it was to arrive at any clear idea of the depth or size or condition of the canyon slopes from the main rim of wall above. The second wall, a stupendous yellow-faced cliff two thousand feet high, curved to my left round to a point in front of me. The intervening canyon might have been half a mile wide, and it might have been ten miles. I became disgusted with judging distance. The slope above this second wall facing me ran up far above my head. It fairly towered, and this routed all my former judgments, because I remembered distinctly that from the rim this yellow and green mountain had appeared an insignificant little ridge. But it was when I turned my gaze up behind me that I fully grasped the immensity of the place. This wall and slope were the first two steps down the long stairway of the Grand Canyon, and they towered over me, straight up a half-mile in dizzying height. To think of climbing it took my breath away. Then again, Sounder's Bay floated distinctly to me, but it seemed to come from a different point. I turned my ear to the wind, and in the succeeding moments I was more and more baffled. One bay sounded from below, and next from far to the right, another from the left. I could not distinguish voice from echo. The acoustic properties of the amphitheater beneath me were too powerful for my comprehension. As the bay grew sharper, and correspondingly more significant, I became distracted and focused a strained vision on the canyon deeps. I lucked along the slope to the notch, where the wall curved and followed the baseline of the yellow cliff. Quite suddenly I saw a very small black object moving with snail-like slowness. Although it seemed impossible for Sounder to be so small, I knew it was he. Having something now to judge distance from, I conceived it to be a mile, without the drop. If I could hear Sounder, he could hear me. So I yelled encouragement. The echoes clapped back at me like so many slaps in the face. I watched the hound until he disappeared among the broken heaps of stone, and long after that his bay floated to me. Having rested, I essayed the discovery of some of my lost companions or the hounds, and began to climb. Before I started, however, I was wise enough to study the rim wall above, to familiarize myself with the brakes so I would have a landmark. Like horns and spurs of gold, the pinnacles loomed up, massed closely together. They were not unlike an astounding pipe-organ. I had a feeling of my littleness that I was lost, and should devote every moment and effort to the saving of my life. It did not seem possible I could be hunting. Though I climbed diagonally and rested often, my heart pumped so hard I could hear it. A yellow crag with a round head like an old man's cane appeared to me as near the place where I had last heard from Jim, and toward it I labored. Every time I glanced up the distance seemed the same, a climb which I decided would not take more than fifteen minutes required an hour. While resting at the foot of the crag I heard more baying of hounds, but for my life I could not tell whether the sound came from up or down. 
and I commenced to feel that I did not much care. Having signaled till I was hoarse, and receiving none but mock answers, I decided that if my companions had not toppled over a cliff, they were wisely withholding their breath. Another stiff pull up the slope brought me under the rim wall, and there I groaned because the wall was smooth and shiny without a break. I plodded slowly along the base with my rifle ready. Cougar tracks were so numerous I got tired of looking at them. But I did not forget that I might meet a tawny fellow or two along those narrow passages of shattered rock, and under the thick, dark pinions. Going on in this way, I ran point-blank into a pile of bleached bones before a cave. I had stumbled on the lair of a lion, and, from the looks of it, one like that of old Tom. I flinched twice before I threw a stone into the dark-mouthed cave. What impressed me, as soon as I found I was in no danger of being pawed and clawed around the gloomy spot, was from the fact of the bones being there. How did they come on a slope where a man could hardly walk? Only one answer seemed feasible. The lion had made his kill one thousand feet above and pulled the quarry to the rim and pushed it over. In view of the theory that he might have had to drag his victim from the forest, and that very seldom two lions worked together, the fact of the location of the bones was startling. Skulls of wild horses and deer, antlers and countless bones, all crushed into shapelessness, furnished the inaudible proof that the carcasses had fallen from a great height. Most remarkable of all was the skeleton of a cougar lying across that of a horse. I believed, I could not help but believe, that the cougar had fallen with his last victim. Not running rods beyond the lion den, the rim wall split into towers, crags, and pinnacles. I thought I had found my pipe organ, and began to climb toward a narrow opening in the rim, but I lost it. The extraordinary cut-up condition of the wall made holding to one direction impossible. Soon I realized I was lost in a labyrinth. I tried to find my way down again, but the best I could do was to reach the verge of a cliff from which I could see the canyon. Then I knew where I was, yet I did not know, so I plodded wearily back. Many a blind cleft did I ascend in the maze of crags. I could hardly crawl along, still I kept at it, for the place was conducive to dire thoughts. A tower of Babel menaced me with tons of loose shale, a tower that leaned more frightfully than the Tower of Pizza, threatened to build my tomb. Many a lighthouse-shaped crag sent down little scattering rocks in ominous notice. After toiling in and out passageways under the shadows of these strangely formed crifts, and coming again and again to the same point, a blind pocket, I grew desperate. I named the baffling place Deception Pass, and then ran down a slide. I knew if I could keep my feet I could beat the avalanche. More by good luck than management, I outran the roaring stones and landed safely. Then rounding the cliff below, I found myself on a narrow ledge, with the wall to my left and to the right the tips of pinion trees level with my feet. Innocently and wearily, I passed round a pillar-like corner of wall to come face to face with an old lioness and cubs. I heard the mother snarl, and at the same time her ears went back flat, and she crouched. The same fire of yellow eyes, the same grim, snarling expression so familiar in my mind since old Tom had leaped at me, faced me here. My recent vow of extermination was entirely forgotten, 
and one frantic spring carried me over the ledge. Crash! I felt the brushing and scratching of branches and saw a green blur. I went down straddling limbs and hit the ground with a thump. Fortunately, I landed mostly on my feet, in sand, and suffered no serious bruise. But I was stunned, and my right arm was numb for a moment. Then I gathered myself together. Instead of being grateful, the ledge had not been on the face of the point sublime, from which I would most assuredly have leaped. I was the angriest man ever let loose in the Grand Canyon. Of course, the cougars were far on their way by that time, and were telling their neighbors about the brave hunter's leap for life. So I devoted myself to further efforts to find an outlet. The niche I had jumped into opened below, as did most of the breaks, and I worked out of it to the base of the rim wall, and tramped a long, long mile before I reached my own trail leading down. Resting every five steps, I climbed and climbed. My rifle grew to weigh a ton, my feet were lead, the camera stacked to my shoulder, was the world. Soon climbing meant trapeze work, long reach of arm, and pull of weight, high step of foot, and spring of body. Where I had slid down with ease, I had to strain and raise myself by sheer muscle. I wore my left glove to tatters and threw it away to put the right one on my left hand. I thought many times I could not make another move. I thought my lungs would burst, but I kept on. When at last I surmounted the rim, I saw Jones and flopped down beside him, and lay panting, dripping, boiling, with scorched feet, aching limbs, and numb chest. I've been here for two hours, he said, and I knew things were happening below, but to climb up that slide would kill me. I'm not young any more, and a steep climb like this takes a young heart. As it was, I had enough work. Look, he called my attention to his trousers. They had been cut to shreds, and his right trouser leg was missing from the knee down. His shin was bloody. Moves took a line along the rim, and I went after him with all my horse could do. I yelled for boys, but they didn't come. Right here it is easy to go down, but below where Moe started this lion, it was impossible to get over the rim. The lion lit straight out of the pinions. I lost ground because of the thick brush and numerous trees. Then Mose didn't bark often enough. He treed the lion twice. I could tell by the way he opened up and bayed. The rascal coon dog climbed the trees and chased the lion out. That's what Mose did. I got to an open space and saw him, and was coming up fine when he went down over a hollow which ran into the canyon. My horse tripped and fell, turning clear over with me before he threw me into the brush. Tore my clothes and got this bruise, but wasn't much hurt. My horse is pretty lame. I began a recital of my experience, modestly admitting the incident where I bravely faced an old lioness. Upon consulting my watch, I found I had been almost four hours climbing out. At that moment, Frank poked a red face over the rim. He was in his shirt sleeve, sweating freely, and wore a frown I had never seen before. He puffed like a porpoise, and at first could hardly speak. Where? Where y'all? he panted. Say, but maybe this hasn't been a chase. Jim and Wallace and me went tumbling down after the dogs, each one looking out for this particular dog, and darn me if I didn't believe his lion, too. Don took one oozing down the canyon, with me hot-footin' after him, 
and somewhere he treed that lion right below me in a box canyon sort of an offshoot of the second rim and i couldn't locate him i blame near killed myself more'n once look at my knuckles barked him sliding down the mile down a smooth wall i thought once the lion had jumped on but soon i heard him barking again all that time i heard sounder and once i heard the pup jim yelled and somebody was shooting but i couldn't find nobody or make nobody hear me that canyon it is a mighty deceiving place you'd never think so till you go down i wouldn't climb up it again for all the lions in buckskin hello here comes jim oozing up jim appeared just over the rim and when he got up to us dusty torn and fagged out with don teague and ranger showing signs of collapse we all blurted out questions but jim took his time sure that canyon is one hell of a place he began finally where was everybody Tig and the pup went down with me and treat a cougar. Yes, they did, and I sat under pinion holding the pup while Tig kept the cougar treed. I yelled and yelled. After about an hour or two, Wallace came pounding down like a giant. It was a sure thing we'd get the cougar, and Wallace was taking his picture when the blame cat jumped. It was embarrassing because he wasn't polite about how he jumped. We scattered some, and when wallace got his gun the cougar was humping down the slope and he was going so fast and the pinions was so thick that wallace couldn't get a fair shot and missed teague and the pup was so scared by the shots they wouldn't take the trail again i heard someone shoot about a million times and sure thought the cougar would done for wallace went plunging down the slope and i followed i couldn't keep up with him he sure takes long steps and i lost him i'm reckoning he went over the second wall then I made tracks for the top. Boys, the way you can see and hear things down in that canyon, the way you can't hear and see things is pretty funny. If Wallace went over the second rim wall, will he get back today, we all ask. There, there, no telling. We waited, lounged, and slept for three hours, and were beginning to worry about our comrade when he hove in sight eastward along the rim. He walked like a man whose next step would be his last. When he reached us, he fell flat and lay breathing heavily for a while. Someone once mentioned Israel Putnam's ascent of a hill, he said slowly. With all respect to history and a patriot, I wish to say Putnam never saw a hill. Who's for camp? called out Frank. Five o'clock found us round a bright fire, all casting ravenous eyes at a smoking supper. The smell of the Persian meat would have made a wolf of a vegetarian. I devoured four chops and could not have been counted in the running. Jim opened a can of maple syrup, which he had been saving for a grand occasion, and Frank went in one better with two cans of peaches. How glorious to be hungry, to feel the craving for food, and to be grateful, for to realize that the best of life lies in the daily needs of existence, and to battle for them nothing could be stronger than the simple enumeration and statement of the facts of wallace's experience after he left jim he chased the cougar and kept it in sight until it went over the second rim wall here he dropped over a precipice twenty feet high to alight on a fan-shaped slide which spread toward the bottom it began to slip and move by jerks and then started off steadily with an increasing roar he rode an avalanche for one thousand feet the jar loosened boulders from the walls. When the slide stopped, 
Wallace extricated his feet and began to dodge the boulders. He had only time to jump over the large ones or dart to one side out of their way. He dared not run. He had to watch them coming. One huge stone hurled over his head and smashed a pinion tree below. When these had ceased rolling and he had passed down to the red shale, he heard Sounder baying near, and knew a cougar had been treed or cornered. Hurtling the stones and dead pinions, Wallace ran a mile down the slope, only to find he had been deceived in the direction. He sheered off to the left. Sounder's elusive bay came up from a deep cleft. Wallace plunged into a pinion, climbed to the ground, skidded down a solid slide to come upon an impassable obstacle in the form of a solid wall of red granite. Sounder appeared and came to him, evidently having given up the chase. Wallace consumed four hours in making the ascent. In the notch of the curve of the second rim wall, he climbed the slippery steps of a waterfall. At one point, if he had not been six feet five inches tall, he would have been compelled to attempt retracing his trail, an impossible task. But his height enabled him to reach a route, by which he pulled himself up. Sounder he lassoed Allah Jones and hauled up. At another spot which Sounder climbed, he lassoed a pinion above and walked up with his feet slipping from under him at every step. The knees of his corduroy trousers were holes, as were the elbows of his coat. The sole of his left boot, which he used most in climbing, was gone, and so was his hat. End of chapter 14「Fifteen of the Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. The Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Gray. Chapter 15. Jones on Cougars. The mountain lion or cougar of our Rocky Mountain region is nothing more nor less than the panther. He is a little different in shape, color, and size, which vary according to his environment. The panther of the Rockies is usually light, taking the grayish hue of the rocks. He is stockier and heavier of build and stronger of limb than the eastern species, which differences come from climbing mountains and springing down the cliffs after his prey. In regions accessible to man or when where man is encountered even rarely, the cougar is exceedingly shy, seldom or never venturing from the cover. During the day he spends the hours of daylight high on the most rugged cliffs sleeping and basking in the sunshine and watching with wonderfully keen sight the valleys below. His hearing equals his sight, and if danger threatens, he always hears it in time to sulk away unseen. At night he steals down the mountainside, toward deer or elk, he is located during the day. Keeping to the lowest ravines and thickets, he creeps upon his prey. His cunning and ferocity are keener and more savage in proportion to the length of time he has been without food. As he grows hungrier and thinner, his skill and fierce strategy correspondingly increase. A well-fed cougar will creep upon and secure only about one in seven of the deer, elk, antelope, or mountain sheep that he stalks. But a starving cougar is another animal. He creeps like a snake, is as sure on the scent as a vulture, makes no more noise than a shadow, and he hides behind a stone or bush that would scarcely conceal a rabbit. Then he springs with terrific force and intensity of purpose, and seldom fails to reach his victim. And once the claws of a starved lion touch flesh, they never let go. A cougar seldom pursues his quarry after he has leaped and missed. 
either from disgust or failure or knowledge that a second attempt would be futile. The animal making the easiest prey for the cougar is the elk. About every other elk attacked falls a victim. Deer are more fortunate, the ratio being one dead to five leaped at. The antelope, living on the lowlands or upland meadows, escapes nine times out of ten, and the mountain sheep or bighorn seldom falls to the onslaught of his enemy. Once the lion gets a hold with the great forepaw, every movement of the struggling prey sinks the sharp hooked claws deeper. Then, as quickly as is possible, the lion fastens his teeth in the throat of his prey and grips till it is dead. In this way elk have carried lions for many rods. The lion seldom tears the skin of the neck and never, as is generally supposed, sucks the blood of its victim. But he cuts into the side, just behind the foreshoulder and eats the liver first. He rolls the skin back as neatly and tightly as a person could do it. When he has gorged himself, he drags the carcass into a ravine or a dense thicket, and rakes leaves, sticks, or dirt over it to hide it from other animals. Usually he returns to his cage on the second night, and after that the frequency of his visits depend on the supply of fresh prey. In remote regions, unfrequented by man, the lion will guard his cake, from coyotes and buzzards. In sex, there are about five female lions to one male. This is caused by the jealous and vicious disposition of the male. It is a fact that the old toms will kill every young lion they can catch. Both male and female of the litter suffer alike until after weaning time, and then only the males. In this matter, wise animal logic is displayed by the toms. The domestic cat, to some extent, possesses the same trait. If the litter is destroyed, the mating time is sure to come about, regardless of the season. Thus this savage trait of the lions prevents overproduction, and breeds a hardy and intrepid race. If by chance or that cardinal feature of animal life the survival of the fittest, a young male lion escapes to the weaning time, even after that he is persecuted. Young male lions have been killed and found to have had their flesh beaten until it was a mass of bruises, and undoubtedly it had been the work of an old tom. Moreover, old males and females have been killed and found to be in the same bruised condition. A feature, and a conclusive one, is the fact that invariably the female is suckling her young at that period, and sustains the bruises in desperately defending her litter. It is astonishing how cunning, wise, and Faithful an old lioness is. She seldom leaves her kittens. From the time they are six weeks old, she takes them out to train them for the battles of life, and the struggle continues from birth to death. A lion hardly ever dies naturally. As soon as night descends, the lioness stealthily stalks forth, and because of her little ones, takes very short steps. The cubs follow, stepping in their mother's tracks. When she crouches for game, each little lion crouches also, and each one remains perfectly still until she springs, or signals them to come. If she secures the prey, they all gorge themselves. After the feast, the mother takes her back trail, stepping in the tracks she made coming down the mountain, and the cubs are very careful to follow suit, and not to leave marks of their trail in the soft snow. No doubt this habit is practiced to keep their deadly enemies in ignorance of their existence. The old toms and white hunters are their only foes. Indians never kill a lion. 
This trick of the lions has fooled many a hunter, concerning not only the direction, but particularly the number. The only successful way to hunt lions is with trained dogs. A good hound can trail them for several hours after the tracks have been made, and on a cloudy or wet day can hold the scent much longer. In snow, the hound can trail for three or four days after the track has been made. When Jones was game warden of Yellowstone National Park, he had unexampled opportunities to hunt cougars and learn their habits. All the cougars in that region of the Rockies made a rendezvous of the game preserve. Jones soon procured a pack of hounds, but as they had been trained to run deer, foxes, and coyotes, he had great trouble. They would break on the trail of these animals, and also on elk and antelope, just when this was furthest from his wish. He soon realized that to train the hounds was a sore task. When they refused to come back at his call, he stung them with fine shot, and in this manner taught obedience. But obedience was not enough. The hounds must know how to follow and tree a lion. With this in mind, Jones decided to catch a lion alive and give his dog practical lessons. A few days after reaching this decision, he discovered the tracks of two lions in the neighborhood of Mount Everett. The hounds were put on the trail and followed it into an abandoned coal shaft. Jones recognized this as his opportunity, and taking his lasso and an extra rope, he crawled into the hole. Not fifteen feet from the opening sat one of the cougars, snarling and spitting. Jones promptly lassoed it, passed his end of the lasso, round a slide prop on the shaft, and out to the soldiers who had followed him. Instructing them not to pull till they called, he cautiously began to crawl by the cougar, with the intention of getting further back and roping its hind leg, so as to prevent disaster when the soldiers pulled it out. He accomplished this, not without some uneasiness in regard to the second lion and giving the word to his companions, soon had his captive hauled from the shaft and tied so tightly it could not move. Jones took the cougar and his hounds to an open place in the park, where there were trees and prepared for a chase. Loosing the lion, he held his hounds back a moment then let them go. Within one hundred yards the cougar climbed a tree, and the dogs saw the performance. Taking a forked stick, Jones mounted up to the cougar, caught it under the jaw with the stick, and pushed it out. There was a fight, a scramble, and the cougar dashed off to run up another tree. In this manner he soon trained his hounds to the pink of perfection. Jones discovered while in the park that the cougar is king of all beasts of North America. Even a grizzly dashed away in great haste when a cougar made his appearance. At the road camp near Mount Washburn, during the fall of 1904, the bears, grizzlies, and others were always hanging around the cook tent. There were cougars also, and almost every evening about dusk, a big fellow would come parading past the tent. The bears would grunt furiously and scamper in every direction. It was easy to tell when a cougar was in the neighborhood by the peculiar grunts and snorts of the bears and the sharp, distinct, alarmed yelps of coyotes. A lion would just as lief kill a coyote as any other animal, and he would devour it, too. As to the fighting of cougars and grizzlies, that was a mooted question, with the credit on the side of the former. The story of the doings of cougars is told in the snow was intensely fascinating and tragical. How they stalked deer and elk, crept to within springing distance, 
then crouched flat to leap, was as easy to read as if it had been told in print. The leaps and bounds were beyond belief. The longest leap on a level measured eighteen and one-half feet. Jones trailed a half-grown cougar, which in turn was trailing a big elk. He found where the cougar had struck his game, had clung for many rods, to be dashed off by the low limb of a spruce tree. The imprint of the body of the cougar was a foot deep in the snow. Blood and tufts of hair covered the place, but there was no sign of the cougar renewing the chase. In rare cases, cougars would refuse to run or take to trees. One day Jones followed the hounds, eight in number, to come on a huge tom holding the whole pack at bay. He walked to and fro, lashing his tail from side to side, and when Jones dashed up, he coolly climbed a tree. Jones shot the cougar, which in falling struck one of the hounds, crippling him. The hound would never approach a tree after this incident, believing probably that the cougar had sprung upon him. Usually the hounds chased their quarry into a tree long before Jones rode up. It was always desirable to kill the animal with the first shot. If the cougar was wounded and fell or jumped among the dogs, there was sure to be a terrible fight, and the best dogs always received serious injuries, if they were not killed outright. The lion would seize a hound, pull him close, and bite him in the brain. Jones asserted that a cougar would usually run from a hunter, but that this feature was not to be relied upon. And a wounded cougar was as dangerous as a tiger. In his hunts, Jones carried a shotgun and shells loaded with ball for the cougar, and others loaded with fine shot for the hounds. One day, about ten miles from the camp, the hounds took a trail and ran rapidly, as there were only a few inches of snow. Jones found a large lion had taken refuge in a tree that had fallen against another, and aiming at the shoulder of the beast, he fired both barrels. The cougar made no signs he had been hit. Jones reloaded and fired at the head. The old fellow growled fiercely, turned in the tree, and walked down head first, something he would not have been able to do had the tree been upright. The hounds were ready for him, but wisely attacked in the rear. Realizing he had been shooting fine shot at the animal, Jones began a hurried search for a shell loaded with ball. The lion made for him, compelling him to dodge behind trees. Even though the hounds kept nipping the cougar, the persistent fellow still pursued the hunter. At last, Jones found the right shell just as the cougar reached for him. Major, the leader of the hounds, darted bravely in and grasped the leg of the beast just in a nick of time. This enabled Jones to take aim and fire at close range, which ended the fight. Upon examination, it was discovered the cougar had been half-blinded by the fine shot, which accounted for the ineffectual attempts he had made to catch Jones. The mountain lion rarely attacks a human being for the purpose of eating. When hungry, he will often follow the tracks of people, and under favorable circumstances may ambush them. In the park, where game is plentiful, no one has ever known a cougar to follow the trail of a person. But outside the park, lions have been known to follow hunters and practically stalk little children. The Davis family, living a few miles north of the park, have had children pursued to the very doors of their cabin, and other families relate similar experiences. Jones heard of only one fatality, but he believes that if the children were left alone in the woods, the cougars would creep closer and closer, and when assured there was no danger, would spring and kill. Jones never heard the cry of a cougar in the national park. Which strange circumstance, considering the great number of the animals there, 
he believed to be on account of the abundance of game. But he had heard it when a boy in Illinois, and when a man all over the West, and the cry was always the same, weird and wild, like the scream of a terrified woman. He did not understand the significance of the cry, unless it meant hunger, or the wailing mourn of a lioness for her murdered cubs. The destructiveness of this savage species was murderous. Jones came upon one old Tom's den, where there was a pile of nineteen elk, mostly yearlings. Only five or six had been eaten. Jones hunted this old fellow for months, and found that the lion killed on the average three animals a week. The hounds got him up at length and chased him to the Yellowstone River, which he swam at a point impassable for man or horse. One of the dogs, a giant bloodhound named Jack, swam the swift channel, kept on after the lion, but never returned. All cougars have their peculiar traits and habits, the same as other creatures, and all old toms have strongly marked characteristics. But this one was the most destructive cougar Jones ever knew. During Jones's short sojourn as warden in the park, he captured numerous cougars alive and killed seventy-two. End of chapter 15「Sixteen of the Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. The Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Gray. Chapter 16. Kitty. It seemed my eyelids had scarcely touched when Jones' exasperating yet stimulating yell aroused me. Day was breaking. The moon and stars shone with wan luster. A white snowy frost silvered the forest. Old Mose had curled close beside me, and now he gazed at me reproachfully and shivered. Lawson came hustling in with the horses. Jim busied himself around the campfire. My fingers nearly froze while I saddled my horse. At five o'clock we were trotting up the slope of buckskin, bound for the section of ruined rim-wall where we had encountered the convention of cougars. Hoping to save time, we took a shortcut and were soon crossing deep ravines. The sunrise coloring the purple curtain of cloud over the canyon was too much for me, and I lagged on a high ridge to watch it, thus falling behind my more practical companions. A far-off wahoo brought me to a realization of the day's stern duty, and I hurried Satan forward on the trail. Came suddenly upon our leader, leading his horse through the scrub pinion on the edge of the canyon, and I knew at once something had happened, for he was closely scrutinizing the ground. "'I declare this beats me all hollow,' began Jones. "'We might be hunting rabbits instead of the wildest animals on the continent. We jumped a bunch of lions in this clump of pinion. There must have been at least four. I thought we'd run upon an old lioness with cubs, but all the trails were made by full-grown lions. Mose took one north along the rim, same as the other day, but the lion got away quick. Frank saw one lion. Wallace is following Sounder down into the first hollow. Jim has gone over the rim wall after dawn. There you are. Four lions playing tag in broad daylight on top of this wall. I'm inclined to believe Clark didn't exaggerate. But confound the luck, the hounds have split again. They're doing the best, of course, and it's up to us to stay up with them. I'm afraid we'll lose some of them. Hello, I hear a signal. That's from Wallace. Wahoo! Wahoo! 
There he is, coming out of the hollow. The tall Californian reached us presently with Sounder beside him. He reported that the hound had chased a lion into an impassable break, and then joined Frank on a jutting crag of the canyon wall. "'Wahoo!' yelled Jones. There was no answer except the echo, and it rolled up out of the chasm with strange, hollow mockery. "'Don took a cougar down this slide,' said Frank. "'I saw the brute, and Don was making him hump. Ah, there, listen to that!' From the green and yellow depth came the faint yelp of a hound. "'That's Don! That's Don!' cried Jones. "'He's hot on something. Where's Sounder? Here, Sounder! By George, there he goes down the side! Hear him! He's opened up! Hi! Hi! Hi!' The deep, full bay of the hound came ringing on the clear air. "'Wallace, you go down. Frank and I will climb out on that pointed crag. Gray, you stay here. Then we'll have the slide between us. Listen and watch.' From my promontory I watched Wallace go down with his gigantic strides, sending the rocks rolling and cracking. And then I saw Jones and Frank crawl out to the end of a crumbling ruin of yellow wall which threatened to go splintering and thundering down into the abyss. I thought as I listened to the penetrating voice of the hound that nowhere on earth could there be a grander scene of for wild action, wild life. My position afforded a commanding view over a hundred miles of the noblest and most sublime work of nature. The rim wall where I stood sheared down a thousand feet to meet a long wood slope which cut abruptly off into another giant precipice. A second long slope descended and jumped off into what seemed the grave of the world. Most striking in that vast void were the long irregular points of rim wall protruding into the Grand Canyon. From points sublime to pink cliffs of Utah, there were twelve of these colossal capes, miles apart, some sharp, some round, some blunt, all ragged and bold. The great chasm in the middle was full of purple smoke. It seemed a mighty sepulchre, from which misty fumes rolled upward. The turrets, mesas, domes, parapets, escarpments of yellow and red rock gave the appearance of an architectural work of giant hands. The wonderful river of silt, the blood-red, mystic, and sullen real Colorado, lay hidden except in one place far away, where it glimmered wanly. Thousands of colors were blended before my rapt gaze. Yellow predominated, as the walls and cranks lorded it over the lower cliffs and tables. Red glared in the sunlight. Green softened these two, and then purple and violet, gray, blue, and the darker hues shaded away into dim and distinct obscurity. Excited yells from my companions on the other crag recalled me to the living aspect of the scene. Jones was leaning far down in a niche, at seeming great hazard of life, yelling with all the power of his strong lungs. Frank stood still further out on a cracked point that made me tremble, and his yell reinforced Jones's. From far below rolled up a chorus of thrilling bays and yelps, and Jim's call faint but distant on the wonderfully thin air with its unmistakable note of warning. Then on the slide I saw a lion headed for the rim wall and climbing fast. I added my exultant cry to the medley and stretched my arms wide to that innumerable void that glorified for a moment full to the brim of the tingling joy of existence. I did not consider how painful it must have been to the toiling lion. It was only the spell of wild environment 
of perilous yellow crags, of thin, dry air, of voices of man and dog, of the stinging expectation of sharp action, of life. I watched the lion growing bigger and bigger. I saw Don and Sounder run from the pinion into the open slide, and heard their impetuous burst of wild yelps as they saw their game. Then Jones's clarion yell made me bound for my horse. I reached him, was about to mount when Mose came trotting toward me. Caught the old gladiator. When he heard the chorus from below, he plunged like a mad bull. With both arms round him I held on. I vowed never to let him get down that slide. He howled and tore, but I held on. My big black horse with ears laid back stood like a rock. I heard the pattering of little sliding rocks below. Stealthy padded footsteps and hard panting breath, almost like coughs. Then the lion passed out of the slide not twenty feet away. He saw us and sprang into the pinion scrub with the leap of a scared deer. Samson himself could no longer have held Mose. Away he darted with his sharp, angry bark. I flung myself upon Satan and rode out to see Jones ahead and Frank flashing through the green on the white horse. At the end of the pinion thicket, Satan overhauled Jones's bay and we entered the open forest together. We saw Frank glinting across the dark pines. Aye, aye, yelled the colonel. No need was there to whip or spur these magnificent horses. They were fresh. The course was open and smooth as a racetrack, and the impelling chorus of the hounds was at full blast. I gave Satan a loose rein, and he stayed neck and neck with the bay. There was not a log, nor a stone, nor a gully. The hollows grew wider and shallower as we raced along and presently disappeared altogether. The lion was running straight from the canyon, and the certainty that he must sooner or later take to a tree brought from me a yell of irresistible wild joy. Hi, 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 answered Jones. The whipping wind, with its pine-scented fragrance, warm as the breath of summer, was intoxicating as wine. The huge pines, too kingly for close communication with their kind, made wide arches under which the horses stretched out long and low, with supple, springly, powerful strides. Frank's yell rang clear as a bell. We saw him curve to the right and took his yell as a signal for us to cut across. Then we began to close in on him and to hear more distinctly the baying of the hounds. Hi, 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 bawled Jones, and his great trumpet voice rolled down the forest glades. Hi, 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 I screeched in a wild recognition of the spirit of the moment. Fast as they were flying, the bay and the black resounded to our cries and quickened, strained and lengthened under us till the trees sped by in blurs. There, plainly in sight, ahead ran the hounds, Don leading Sounder next, and Mose not fifty yards behind a desperately running lion. There are all satisfying moments of life. That chase through the open forest under the stately pines with the wild, tawny quarry in plain sight and the glad staccato yelps of the hounds filling my ears and swelling my heart with the splendid action of my horse carrying me on the wings of the wind was glorious answer and fullness to the call and hunger of a hunter's blood. But as such moments must be, they were brief. The lion leaped gracefully into the air, splintering the bark from a pine fifteen feet up and crouched on a limb. The hounds tore madly round a tree. Full-grown female, said Jones calmly as we dismounted, and she's ours. 
we'll call her Kitty. Kitty was a beautiful creature, long, slender, glossy, with white belly and black-tipped ears and tail. She did not resemble the heavy, grim-faced brute that always hung in the air of my dreams, a low, brooding, menacing murmur that was not a snarl nor a growl came from her. She watched the dogs with brights and never so much as looked at us. The dogs were worth attention, even from us, who certainly did not need to regard them from her personally hostile point of view. Don stood straight up with his forepaws beating the air. He walked on his hind legs like the trained dog in the circus. He yelped continuously, as if it agonized him to see the lion safe out of his reach. Sounder had lost his identity. Joy had unhinged his mind and had made him a dog of double personality. He had always been unsociable with me, never responding to my attempts to caress him, but now he leaped into my arms and licked my face. He had always hated Jones till that moment when he raised his paws to his master's breast, and perhaps more remarkable, time and time again he sprang up at Satan's nose, whether to bite him or kiss him. I could not tell. Then old Mose, he of Grand Canyon fame, made the delirious antics of his canine fellows look cheap. There was a small dead pine that had fallen against a drooping branch of the tree Kitty had taken refuge in, and up this narrow ladder Mose began to climb. He was fifteen feet up, and Kitty had begun to shift uneasily when Jones saw him. Hey, you wild coon chaser, get out of that! Come down, come down! But Jones might have been in the bottom of the canyon for all Mose heard or cared. Jones removed his coat, carefully coiled his lasso, and began to go hand and knee up the leaning pine. Here, Don, blast you, get down! yelled Jones, and he kicked Mose off. The persistent hound returned and followed Jones to a height of twenty feet, where he again was thrust off. Hold him, one of you, called Jones. Not me, said Frank. I'm looking out for myself. Same here, I cried with a camera in one hand and a rifle in the other. Let Mose climb if he likes. Climb he did to be kicked off again, but he went back. It was a way he had. Jones at last recognized either his own waste of time or Moses' greatness, for he desisted, allowing the hound to keep close after him. The cougar, becoming uneasy, stood up, reached for another limb, climbed out upon it, and peering down spat hissingly at Jones. But he kept steadily on with Mose close on his heels. I snapped my camera on them when Kitty was not more than fifteen feet above them. As Jones reached the snag which upheld the leaning tree, she ran out on her branch and leaped into an adjoining pine. It was a good long jump, and the weight of the animal bent the limb alarmingly. Jones backed down and laboriously began to climb the other tree. As there were no branches low down, he had to hug the trunk with arms and legs as the boy climbs. His lasso hampered his progress. When the slow ascent was accomplished up to the first branch, Kitty leaped back into her first perch. Strange to say, Jones did not grumble. None of his characteristic impatience manifested itself here. I supposed with him all the exasperating weights and vexatious obstacles were little things preliminary to the real work to which he had now come. He was calm and deliberate and slid down the pine, walked back to the leaning tree, and, while resting a moment, shook his lasso at Kitty. This action fitted him, somehow. It was so compatible with his grim assurance. To me, and to Frank also, for that matter, 
it was all new and startling and we were as excited as the dogs we kept continuously moving about frank mounted and i afoot to get good views of the cougar when she crouched as if to leap it was almost impossible to remain under the tree and we kept moving once more jones crept up on hands and knees mose walked the slanting pine like a rope performer kitty began to grow restless this time she showed both anger and impatience but did not yet appear frightened she growled low and deep opened her mouth and hissed and swung her tufted tail faster and faster look out look out look out jones yelled frank warningly jones who had reached the trunk of the tree halted and slipped round it placing between him and kitty she had advanced on her limb a few feet above jones and threateningly hung over jones backed down a little till she crossed to another branch then he resumed his former position what blow called he hardly any doubt was there as to how we watched frank and i were all eyes except very high and throbbing hearts when jones thrashed the lasso at kitty we both yelled she ran out on the branch and jumped this time she fell short of her point clutched a dead snag which broke letting her through a bushy branch from where she hung head downward for a second she swung free then reaching toward the tree caught it with front paws ran down like a squirrel and leaped off when thirty feet from the ground the action was as rapid as it was astonishing like a yellow rubber ball she bounded up and fled with the yelping hounds at her heels the chase was short at the end of a hundred yards mose caught up with her and nipped her she whirled with savage suddenness and lunged at mose but he cunningly eluded the vicious paws then she sought safety in another pine frank who was as quick as the hounds almost rode them down in his eagerness while jones descended from his perch i led the two horses down the forest this time the cougar was well out on a low spreading branch jones conceived the idea of raising the loop of his lasso on a long pole but as no pole of sufficient length could be found he tried from the back of his horse the bay walked forward well enough when however he got under the beast and heard her growl he reared and almost threw jones frank's horse could not be persuaded to go near the tree satan evinced no fear of the cougar and without flinching carried jones directly beneath the limb and stood with ears back and forelegs stiff look at that look at that cried jones as the wary cougar pawed the loop aside three successive times did jones have the lasso just ready to drop over her neck when she flashed a yellow paw and knocked the noose awry then she leapt far out over the waiting dog struck the ground with a light sharp thud and began to run with the speed of a deer frank's cowboy toying now stood us in good stead he was off like a shot and turned the cougar from the direction of the canyon jones lost not a moment in pursuit and i left with jones badly frightened bay got going in time to see the race but not to assist for several hundred yards kitty made this hounds appear slow don being swiftest gained on her steadily toward the close of the dash and presently was running under her upraised tail on the next jump he nipped her she turned and sent him reeling sounder came flying up to bite her flank and at the same moment fierce old mose closed in on her the next instant a struggling mass whirled on the ground jones and frank yelling like demons almost rode over it the cougar broke from her assailants 
and dashing away leaped on the first tree it was a half-dead pine with short snags low down and a big branch extending out over a ravine i think we can hold her now said jones the tree proved to be a most difficult one to climb jones made several ineffectual attempts before he reached the first limb which broke giving him a hard fall this calmed me enough to make me take notice of jones's condition he was wet with sweat and covered with a black pitch from the pines his shirt was slit down the arm and there was blood on his temple and his hand the next attempt began by placing a good-sized log against a tree and proved to be the necessary help jones got hold of the second limb and pulled himself up as he kept on kitty crouched low as if to spring upon him again frank and i sent warning calls to him but he paid no attention to us or to the cougar and continued to climb this worried kitty as much as it did us she began to move on the snags stepping from one to another every moment snarling at jones and then she crawled up the big branch evidently took her eye she tried several times to climb up to it but small snags close together made her distrustful she walked uneasily out upon two limbs and as they bent with her weight she hurried back twice she did this each time looking up showing her desire to leap to the big branch her distress became plainly evident a child could have seen that she feared she would fall at length in desperation she spat at jones then ran out and leaped she all but missed the branch but succeeded in holding to it and swinging to safety then she turned to her tormentor and gave utterance to most savage sounds as she did not intimidate her pursuer she retreated out on the branch which sloped down at a deep angle and crouched on a network of small limbs when jones had worked up a little further he commanded a splendid position for his operations kitty was somewhat below him in a desirable place yet the branch she was on joined the tree considerably above his head jones cast his lasso it caught on a snag throw after throw he made with like result he recoiled and recast nineteen times to my count when frank made a suggestion rope those dead snags and break them off this practical idea jones soon carried out which left him a clear path the next fling of the lariat caused the cougar angrily to shake her head again jones sent the noose flying she pulled it off her back and bit it savagely though very much excited i tried hard to keep sharp keen faculties alert so as not to miss a single detail of the thrilling scene but i must have failed for all of a sudden i saw how jones was standing in the tree something i had not before appreciated he had one handhold which he could not use while recoiling the lasso and his feet rested upon a precariously frail appearing dead snag he made eleven casts of the lasso all of which bothered kitty but did not catch her the twelfth caught her front paw jones jerked so quickly and hard that he almost lost his balance and he pulled the noose off patiently he recoiled the lasso that's what i want if i can get her front paw she's ours my idea is to pull her off the limb let her hang there and then lasso her hang legs another cast the unlikely thirteenth settled the loop perfectly round her neck she chewed on the rope with her front teeth and appeared to have difficulty in holding it easy easy who's that rope easy yelled the cowboy 
Cautiously, Jones took up the slack and slowly tightened the noose, then with a quick jerk fastened it close around her neck. We heralded this achievement with yells of triumph that made the forest ring. The triumph was short-lived. Jones had hardly moved when the cougar shot straight out into the air. The lasso caught on a branch, hauling her up short, and there she hung in mid-air, writhing, struggling, and giving utterance to sounds terribly human. For several seconds she swang, slowly descending, in which frenzied time I, with ruling passion uppermost, endeavored to snap a picture of her. The unintelligible commands Jones was yelling to Frank and me ceased suddenly with a sharp crack of breaking wood, then crash. Jones fell out of the tree. The lasso streaked up, ran over the limb, while the cougar dropped pell-mell into the bunch of waiting, howling dogs. The next few moments it was impossible for me to distinguish what actually transpired. A great flutter of leaves whirled round a swiftly changing ball of brown and black and yellow, from which came a fiendish clamor. Then I saw Jones plunge down the ravine and bounce here and there in mad efforts to catch the whipping lasso. He was roaring in a way that made all his former yells merely whispers. Starting to run, I tripped on a root, fell prone on my face into the ravine, and rolled over and over until I brought up with a bump against a rock. What a tableau riveted my gaze! It staggered me so I did not think of my camera. I stood transfixed, not fifteen feet from the cougar. She sat on her haunches, with body well drawn back by the taut lasso to which Jones held tightly. Don was standing up with her, upheld by the hooked claws in her head. The cougar had her paws outstretched, her mouth open wide, showing long, cruel white fangs. She was trying to pull the head of the dog to her. Don held back with all his power, and so did Jones. Mose and Sounder were tussling around her body. Suddenly both ears of the dog pulled out, slit into ribbons. Don had never uttered a sound, and once free, he made at her again with open jaws. One blow sent him reeling and stunned, then began again that wrestling whirl. "'Beat off the dogs! Beat off the dogs!' roared Jones. "'She'll kill them! She'll kill them!' Frank and I seized clubs and ran in upon the confused, furry mass forgetful of peril to ourselves. In the wild contagion of such a savage moment, the minds of men revert wholly to primitive instincts. We swung our clubs and yelled. We fought all over the bottom of the ravine, crashing through the brushes, over logs and stones. I actually felt the soft fur of the cougar at one fleeting instant. The dogs had the strength born of insane fighting spirit. At last, we pulled them to where Don lay half-stunned, and with an arm tight round each, I held them while Frank turned to help Jones. The disheveled Jones, bloody, grim as death, his heavy jaw locked, stood holding to the lasso. The cougar, her side shaking with short, quick pants, crouched low on the ground with eyes of purple fire. "'For God's sake, get a half-hitch on that saplin!' cried the cowboy. His quick grasp of the situation averted a tragedy. Jones was nearly exhausted even as he was beyond thinking for himself or giving up. The cougar sprang a yellow, frightful flash. Even as she was in the air, Jones took a quick step to one side and dodged as he threw his lasso round to the sapling. She missed him, but one alarmingly outstretched paw gazed his shoulder. A twist of Jones' big hand fastened a lasso, and Kitty was a prisoner. While she fought, rolled, twisted, bounded, whirled, wreathed, and with hissing, snarling fury, Jones sat mopping the sweat and blood from his face. Kitty's efforts were futile. She began to weaken from the choking. 
Jones took another rope, and, tightening a noose round her back paws, which he lassoed, as she rolled over, he stretched her out. She began to contract her supple body, gave a savage, convulsive spring, which pulled Jones flat on the ground. Then the terrible wrestling started again. The lasso slipped over her back paws. She leaped the whole length of the other lasso. Jones caught it and fastened it more securely. But this precaution proved unnecessary, for she suddenly sank down either exhausted or choked and gasped with her tongue hanging out. Frank slipped the second noose over her back paws, and Jones did likewise with a third lasso over her right front paws. These lassos Jones tied to different saplings. "'Now you're a good kitty,' said Jones, kneeling by her. He took a pair of clippers from his hip pocket, and grasping a paw in his powerful fist, he calmly clipped the points of the dangerous claws. This done, he called to me to get the collar and chain that were tied to his saddle. I procured them and hurried back. Then the old buffalo hunter loosened a lasso which was round her neck, and as soon as she could move her head, he teased her to bite a club. She broke two good sticks with her sharp teeth, but the third, being solid, did not break. While she was chewing it, Jorns forced her head back and placed his heavy knee on the club. In a twinkling, he had strapped the collar round her neck, the chain made fast to the sapling. After removing the club from her mouth, he placed his knee on her neck, and while her head was in this helpless position, he dexterously slipped a loop of thick copper wire over her nose, pushed it back, and twisted it tight. Following this, all done with speed and precision, he took from his pocket a piece of steel rod, perhaps one quarter of an inch thick and five inches long. He pushed this between Kitty's jaws, just back of her great white fangs, and in front of the copper wire. She had been shorn of her sharp weapons. She was muzzled, bound, helpless, and object to pity. Lastly, Jones removed the three lassos. Kitty slowly gathered her lissom body in a ball and lay panting with the same brave wildfire in her eyes. Jones stroked her black-tipped ears and ran his hand down her glossy fur. All the time he had kept up a low monotone talking to her in the strange language he used toward animals. Then he rose to his feet. "'We'll go back to camp now and get a pack-saddle and horse,' he said. "'She'll be safe here. We'll rope her again, tie her up, throw her over a pack-saddle, and take her to camp.' To my utter bewilderment, the hounds suddenly commenced fighting among themselves. Of all the vicious, bloody dog-fights I ever saw, that was the worst. I began to belabor them with a club, and Frank sprang to my assistance. Beating had no apparent effect. We broke a dozen sticks, and then Frank grappled with Mose and I was sounder. Don kept on fighting either one till Jones secured him. Then we all took a rest, panting and weary. "'What's it mean?' I ejaculated, appealing to Jones. "'Jealous, that's all. Jealous over the lion.' We all remained seated, men and hounds, a sweaty, dirty, bloody, ragged group. I discovered I was sorry for Kitty. I forgot all the carcasses of deer and horses, the brutality of this species of cat, and even forgot the grim, snarling yellow devil that had leaped at me. Kitty was beautiful and helpless. How brave she was, too. No sign of fear shone in her wonderful eyes, only hate, defiance, watchfulness. On the ride back to camp, Jones expressed himself thus. How oh, happy I am that I can keep this lion and the others we are going to capture for my own. When I was in the Yellowstone Park, I did not get to keep one of the many I captured. The military officials took them from me. 
When we reached camp, Lawson was absent, but fortunately old Baldy browsed near at hand and was easily caught. Frank said he would rather take old Baldy for the cougar than any other horse we had. Leaving me in camp, he and Jones rode off to fetch Kitty. About five o'clock they came trotting up through the forest with Jim, who had fallen in with them on the way. Old Baldy had remained true to his fame. Nothing. Not even a cougar bothered him. Kitty, evidently no worse for her experience, was chained to a pine tree about fifty feet from the campfire. Wallace came riding wearily in, and when he saw the captive he greeted us with an exultant yell. He got there just in time to see the first special features of Kitty's captivity. The hounds surrounded her and could not be called off. We had to beat them. Whereupon the six jealous canines fell to fighting among themselves and fought so savagely as to be deaf to our cries and insensible to blows. They had to be torn apart and chained. About six o'clock Lawson loped in with the horses. Of course he did not know we had a cougar and no one seemed interested enough to inform him. Perhaps only Frank and I thought of it, but I saw Mary snap in Frank's eyes and kept silence. Kidney had hidden behind the pine tree. Lawson, astride Jim's pack-horse, a crotchety animal, reined in just abreast of the tree and leisurely threw his leg over the saddle. Kitty leaped out to the extent of her chain and fairly exploded in a frightful cat-spit. Lawson had stated some time before that he was afraid of cougars which was a weakness he need not have divulged in view of what happened. The horse plunged, throwing him ten feet, and snorting in terror, stampeded with the rest of the bunch, and disappeared among the pines. "'Why the hell didn't you tell a feller?' reproachfully growled the Arizonan. Frank and Jim held each other upright, and the rest of us gave way to as hearty, if not as violent, mirth. We had a gay supper, during which Kitty sat by her pine and watched our every movement. "'I will rest up for a day or two, said Jones. "'Things have commenced to come our way, if I may not mistaken. We'll bring an old Tom alive into camp. But it would never do for us to get a big Tom in the fix we had Kitty today. You see, I wanted to lasso a front paw, pull her off the limb, tie my end of the lasso to a tree, and while she hung I'd go down and rope her hind paws. It all went wrong today and was as tough a job as I ever handled. Not until late next morning did Lawson corral all the horses. That next day we lounged in camp, mending broken saddle, bridles, stirrups, lassos, boots, trousers, leggings, shirts, and even broken shins. During this time I found Kitty a most interesting study. She reminded me of an enormous yellow kitten. She did not appear wild or untamed until approached. Then she slowly sank down, laid back her ears, opened her mouth, and hissed and spat, at the same time throwing both paws out viciously. Kitty may have rested, but did not sleep. At times she fought her chain, tuggling and straining at it, and trying to bite it through. Everything in reach she clawed, particularly the bark of the tree. Once she tried to hang herself by leaping over a low limb. When any one walked by her, she crouched low, evidently imagining herself unseen. If one of us walked toward her, or looked at her, she did not crouch. At other times, noticeably when no one was near, she would roll on her back and extend all four paws in the air. Her actions were beautiful, soft, noiseless, quick and subtle. The day passed, as all days pass in camp, 
swiftly and pleasantly, and twilight stole down upon us round the ruddy fire. The wind roared in the pines and lulled to repose. The loathsome, friendly coyote barked. The bells on the hobble horses jingled sweetly. The great watch-stars blinked out of the blue. The red glow of the burning logs lighted up Jones's calm, cold face. Tranquil, unalterable, and peaceful it seemed. Yet beneath the peace I thought I saw a suggestion of wild restraint, of mystery, of unslaked life. Strangely enough, his next word confirmed my last thought. For forty years I've had an ambition. It's to get possession of an island in the Pacific somewhere between Vancouver and Alaska, and go to Siberia and capture a lot of Russian sables. I'd put them on the island and cross them with our silver foxes. I'm going to try it next year if I can find the time. The ruling passion and character determined our lives. Jones was sixty-three years old, yet the thing that had ruled and absorbed his mind was still as strong as a longing for freedom in Kitty's wild heart. Hours after I had crawled into my sleeping bag in the silence of night, I heard her working to get free. In darkness she was most active, restless, intense. I heard the clink of her chain, the crack of her teeth, the scrape of her claws. How tireless she was! I recalled the wistful light in her eyes that saw, no doubt, far beyond the campfire to the yellow crags to the great downland slopes to freedom. I slipped my elbow out of the bag and raised myself. Dark shadows were hovering under the pines. I saw Kitty's eyes gleam like sparks, and I seemed to see in it the hate, the fear, the terror she had of the clanking that bound her. I shivered, perhaps from the cold night wind which moaned through the pines, I saw the stars glittering pale and far off, and under their wan light the still-set face of Jones and blanketed forms of my other companions. The last thing I remembered before dropping into dreamless slumber was hearing a bell tinkle in the forest, which I recognized as one I had placed on Satan. End of chapter 16《Chapter Seventeen of the Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Grey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. The Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Grey. Chapter Seventeen Conclusion. Kitty was not the only cougar brought into camp alive. The ensuing days were fruitful of cougars and adventure. There were more wild rides to the music of the baying hounds and more heartbreaking canyon slopes to conquer, and more swinging, tufted tails and snarling savage faces and opinions. Once again, I am sorry to relate I had to glance down the sights of the little Remington, and I saw blood on the stones. Those eventful days sped by all too soon. When the time for parting came, it took no little discussion to decide on the quickest way of getting me to a railroad. I never fully appreciated the inaccessibility of the Siwash until the question arose of finding a way out. To return on our back trail would require two weeks, and to go out by the trail north to Utah meant half as much time over the same kind of desert. 
Lawson came to our help, however, with the information that an occasional prospector or horse-hunter crossed the canyon from the saddle, where a trail led down to the river. "'I've heard the trail is a bad one,' said Lawson, "'and though I've never seen it, I reckon it could be found. After we get to saddle, we'll build two fires on one side of the high points and keep them burning well after dark. Mr. Bass, who lives on the other side, sees the fires. He'll come down his trail next morning and meet us at the river. He keeps the boat there. This is taking a chance, but I reckon it's worth while. So it was decided that Lawson and Frank would try to get me out by way of the canyon. Wallace intended to go by the Utah route, and Jones was to return at once to his range and his buffalo. That night round the campfire we talked over the many incidents of the hunt. Jones stated he had never in his life come so near, getting his everlasting as when the big bay horse tripped on a canyon slope and rolled over him. Notwithstanding the respect with which we regarded his statement, we held different opinions. Then, with the unfailing optimism of hunters, we planned another hunt for the next year. "'I'll tell you what,' said Jones. "'Up in Utah there's a wild region called Pink Cliffs. Few poor sheepherders try to raise sheep in the valleys.' They wouldn't be so poor if they were not for the grizzly and black bears that live on the sheep. We'll go up there, find a place where grass and water can be had, and camp. We'll notify the sheep herders we are there for business. They'll be only too glad to hustle in with news of a bear, and we can get the hounds on the trail by sunup. I'll have a dozen hounds then, maybe twenty, and well trained. We'll put every black bear we chase up a tree, and we'll rope and tie him. As to grizzlies, well, I'm not saying so much. They can't climb trees, and they aren't afraid of a pack of hounds. If we rounded up a grizzly, got him cornered, and threw a rope on him, there'd be some fun, huh, Jim? Sure it would, Jim replied. On the strength of this, I stored up food for future thought and thus reconciled myself to bidding farewell to the purple canyons and shaggy slopes of Buckskin Mountain. At five o'clock next morning we were all stirring. Jones yelled at the hounds and untangled Kitty's chain. Jim was already busy with the biscuit dough. Frank shook the frost off the saddles. Wallace was packing. The merry jangle of bells came from the forest. Presently Lawson appeared, driving in the horses. Caught my black and saddled him, then realizing we were soon to part, I could not resist giving him a hug. An hour later we all stood at the head of the trail, leading down into the chasm. The east gleamed rosy red. Powell's Plateau loomed up in the distance, and under it showed the dark fringed dip in the rim called the Saddle. Blue mist floated round the mesas and domes. Lawson led the way down the trail. Frank started old Baldy with the pack. Come, he called. Be oozing along. I called the last good-bye and turned Satan into the narrow trail. When I looked back, Jones stood on the rim with the fresh glow, dawn shining on his face. The trail was steep and claimed my attention and care, but time and time again I gazed back. Jones waved his hand till a huge, juttering cliff walled him from view. Then I cast my eyes on the rough descent and the wonderful void beneath me. In my mind lingered a pleasing consciousness of my last sight of the old plainsman. He fitted the scene. He belonged there among the silent pines and the yellow crags. The End End of the Last Plainsman by Zane Gray 
Recording by Mike Vendetti, Canyon City, Colorado. MikeVendetti.com.